You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that's going to hunt J.K. Rowling for sport. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And no, we are not going to address the nine-month gap between episodes. The sixth. Actually, we just fell out of a time portal after recording the Green Knight episode. Whoa! What? It's it's September? The fourth. Shit, I guess we need to put a new episode out. The sixth? Fuck. <laughs> I lost count. I wouldn't worry too much about it. It's like Moon. Yep, that's a reference, all right. Anyway, dreams. We all have them, presumably. Amen. <laughs> Unless you're a robot. Yeah. Have you ever heard of dreams? That's a joke for no one. That's it's a joke reference. for me. But maybe if you're a robot, you still do have dreams, but they're humorously themed to the fact that you're a machine being of tubes and wires, by which I mean today we're talking about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. So, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is a neo-noir dystopian sci-fi novel following hardened bounty hunter and rock's stupid idiot Rick Deckard as he runs around hunting rogue androids in the far-flung future of 2021! Ooh! That's the past. No, it's the far-flung dystopian future. Shut up. The book was published in 1968 and eventually reprinted with the title Blade Runner, colon, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So people would associate it more with the movie, I guess, because, and we'll get into this more in the adaptation section. The occupation of Blade Runner isn't a thing in the book. The Decker's just called Bounty Hunter. So I guess like Ridley Scott had looked at like the title of the book and went like, mm, no, that's very long and boring. I'm gonna call it Blade Runner. Cause they run the blade. I don't know. Fuck it. It sounds cooler. And he was absolutely right, which is not something I enjoy saying about Ridley Scott, but that's neither here nor there. Rollerblades were in in the 80s. <laughs> no one rollerblades in Blade Runner. Thunderdome. What, were you trying to do, like, rollerball, and then you just went to Mad Max? Oh, both. <laughs> RJ got a booster shot and a flu shot today. And, I mean, I guess you can blame that on whatever's going to happen. <laughs> oh, I'm like the ninth Sam Rockwell. <laughs> yeah, you get the diminishing returns. You sure do. Um, the book was nominated for a Nebula Award in 1968 and in 1998 won the Locus Pull Award for All-Time Best Sci-Fi Novel Before 1990. You're the least helpful Kevin Spacey. I really don't like that comparison. <laughs> Especially if people don't know the movie Moon. You're just calling me Kevin Spacey. Do you want to be frank? Uh, he took 51st place out of how many? I don't know. I wasn't that invested in finding an answer. So, the question, as ever, RJ... What up? Did you have to read this book in school? It was assigned multiple times. Yes. Yes. And did you read it on any of those? No. Okay. Like high school, college? I think like once at each educational level. <laughs> <laughs> so they just kept throwing it at you and you just kept saying no. Yeah, high school, I 
pretty sure college definitely and grad school definitely. Why not just read it at that point? It's like 90 pages. Yeah, it's full. It's like about 200, I think. Oh, oh. It's a very short book. That was a short story. No, I mean, it's like kind of like a, I would have thought it was like a novella, but I think it technically qualifies as a novel. I got a movie with Harrison Ford. The, as we're going to find, the movie and the book uh, bear little resemblance with each other. Oh, and then there's different versions of the movie. And I had to watch... See, I went through the trouble of watching different versions of the movie in school because that was also part of the assignment. Mm. But I figured I got enough. <laughs> I get I get voiceover. I get no voiceover. You know, it's a different story every time. So I actually did not read it. or It was not even assigned to me. Hey, until, you want me to ask you this? Yeah, I mean, we don't usually, but you hey. can go ahead. No. Yeah, that's that's the last i know it's been a very long time that's the thing we do at the end of the podcast <laughs> so yeah I, I was assigned to me in uh grad school when i took a class about ai and science fiction novels and it was it was very cool it's a cool class uh we did watch blade runner in a postmodernism class i took an undergrad but i'm like 95 percent sure we didn't read the book like we just watched the movie but also my recollection of that event is is overshadowed by like hearing one of my classmates say possibly the dumbest shit ever after we watched it, which we can we can talk about later, I suppose. And in a way, that's kind of par for the course, as the film Blade Runner has hugely overtaken Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep in terms of cultural recognition and consciousness and whatnot. But is it worth exploring on its own merits? Did RJ and I just pick it because we really want to talk about Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 and how they recontextualize each other? Well, we'll get to that. But before we do, RJ, why don't you give us the lowdown on Philip K. Dick, who was, to put it mildly, a deeply troubled man. Philip Kindred Dick. Never heard the middle name Kindred before. Yeah, me neither. Born December 16, 1928, and died March 2, 1982. During his career, he wrote, at times, under the pen name Richard Phillips. You know, really throwing people off the dick scent. <laughs> Ew. But... Given that Philip and Dick seem inseparable, and that Philip K. Dick truly was a bad boy for life in the realm of Ono class, there's only one name that fits the man, and that name is P. Dicky. I mean, you kind of already, like, I, I know this is years and years back, so it, for you, it, it's like it never happened. You called Charles Dickens Chucky Dicky. Oh, Chucky. That's a P. Diddy song? I don't follow. I miss Chucky. Rip. Take him for his time. Okay, if you're gonna have a bunch of musical cues lined up, like, you're going to have, have to justify- Oh, that was it? <laughs> yeah. I don't believe we'll, you. We'll get the use out of this song. Okay. Um, yeah, you're gonna have to, to justify that. It's and, not is, musical is it, cues. Is it just that P. Dicky- kind of sounds like p diddy is that is that really the nexus of this yeah well, he's a bad boy for life all right go ahead now for those tried and true ono oh class listeners you have truly been around the world with us so now that's a p diddy song you gotta be following this it's not <laughs> a good joke if you have to stop and say oh by the way this is a p diddy song <laughs> I'm going to slip in like 30 of these things. Great. See how many you can spot, kids. If you could email us the correct answer for any songs I reference in my script today. And by referencing, I mean I just used in mid-sentence. 
you can win a prize. Emphasis on could. Less emphasis on win. RG will record a cameo for you if you win. I usually charge for those. Yeah, well, there you go. But the story of P. Dickey begins here in the U.S., specifically in the land known as Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, Illinois, home of the deep dish pizza, Duh Bears. And according to Sufjan Stevens, Chicago is a place where all things know, a lot of mistakes, and where he sold his clothes to the state. Did you ever sell your clothes to the state? No, but I've, I've also never been Sufjan Stevens, so, you know. It's also the place where P. Dickey came into the world on December 16th, 1928. He was born to Dorothy Dick, Double D, and <laughs> Joseph Edgar Dick, J. Edgar Dick. <laughs> In the pantheon of names family members could have, the Dicks really had some bangers. Ah. P. Dickey had a twin sister, Jane Charlotte Dick, J.C. Dick, but she passed a little less than six weeks into her life. This led P. Dickey to pen the following lines later in life. Hmm. What? See, it's the thing you hesitated <laughs> over. You didn't even have confidence. I know you're still living your life after death. Every step I take, every move I make, every single day, every time I pray, I'll be missing you. It fits so perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's like he's singing about a dead twin that he barely got to know. Both twins were severe. No, I can't say that happily. <laughs> what were you about to say in a real chipper fucking tone of voice there, RJ? Um, both twins were... No. <laughs> you did this. I didn't do this. You did they, this to they, yourself. They, then this wasn't P. Dickey. This was P. Dickey's parents. Ahem. Both twins were severely malnourished, and while P. Dickey survived, he was thought to only have hours to live. That's horrible. I know. When Jane was buried, Philip's name was engraved on the tombstone next to Jane's, which haunted him until his own death. Yeah. That's awful, but you were almost giggling your way <laughs> yeah, through it. I <laughs> Malnourished infants. <laughs> the Dick family lived in Chicago for a couple of years until Daddy Dick's job with the U.S. Department of Agriculture brought the family to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. This is when a family four could live in San Fran on the wages one government income could provide. Those were the days. Mm-hmm. Daddy Dick's job was to count the farm livestock to ensure government quotas were not exceeded. If he found an extra sheep, no shit, he would pull out a knife and cut its throat. No, no fucking way. No free sheep. Holy shit. If you're allowed 100 sheep, guess what? You get 100 sheep. There's 101 sheep. You ain't getting it. No one's getting it. Why can't you give the sheep to someone else? <laughs> that ain't Daddy Dick's job. Holy shit. You just kill him. That's wild. He was the original Blade Runner. Hey. hey. There you go. You got a good one. Yeah. Life on the left coast did not last long as Daddy Dick's job moved to Reno, Nevada. The home of agriculture, I guess. The desert. Mommy Dick did not want to move to the desert and basically told Daddy Dick that unless he fights to stay in San Francisco, she would divorce him. Well... Daddy Dick quit job before wife and kid, divorced Mommy Dick, and went to Reno. Both parents sued for custody of P. Dickey. Mommy won. And then took him off to Washington, D.C. P. Dickey and the fam. Who you know do it better. Yeah, right. No matter what, they airtight. At least him and his mom. (sighs) Early in his education, P. Dickey was a pretty mediocre student. Funny enough, his worst subject was composition, in which he earned grades that hovered around C's. His writing teacher did note, though, that Dickie, quote, shows interest and ability in storytelling. To which Dickie replied, So when you hear something, make sure you hear it right. Don't make an ass out of yourself by assuming. Our writing keeps you moving. 
What are you proving by giving me C's? I think we can't really offer a prize because it's pretty obvious when when you just start saying lines from P. Diddy songs. I'm dropping bars, man. Coming in hot. Yeah. Yeah? I don't know if you're dropping the bars so much as kind of awkwardly stumbling and then tripping over the bars. P. Dicky was putting Quaker skulls. That's the sentence. You know, the Oats people. Okay. <laughs> they are. The Protestant Christians, also known as the Religious Society of Friends, that believe you can see the light of God, and the light of God is in everyone. The people who are separated from the Shakers. And quick fact, there are about 400,000 people who still identify as Quakers, with half of them living in Africa. What does this have to do with Philip K. Dick? I don't know, he's put in Quaker schools. He was one of the Oat people. The whole Quaker phase did not last very long as Mommy and P moved back to California, Berkeley this time, where P was put in public school when he was 10. And was introduced to sci-fi through the sci-fi magazine, Stirring Science Stories. You ever read Stirring <laughs> Science Stories? You have to say, like, Stirring Science Stories! <laughs> P. Dickey attended Berkeley High School, graduated when he was 19, and was in the graduating class with someone else who had become a sci-fi writer of much renown, Ursula K. Le Guin. It is said P. Dickey and Ursula did not know each other in high school. From high school, P. Dickey began working. First, he hosted classical music programs on KSMO Radio, where he dropped some serious beats before getting a job at a record store company. It was at this point P. Dickey decided, I need a girl to ride, ride, ride. I need a girl to make my wife. I need a girl who's mine, all mine. I need a girl in my life. Now, did you listen to any of these at any points to know like, just how like rotely and incorrectly <laughs> you're doing this? No. Of course not. And so, at the ripe old age of 20, he married a customer of the record company he worked for, Jeanette Marlin. The marriage lasted five months. Mm. Ride or die, indeed. <laughs> well, that's why you don't get married at age 20, typically. P. Dickey would marry four more times, but the next marriage was still a decade in the future, so at least he learned his lesson. 20-year-olds should not be marrying. Yeah. Maybe it was the failed marriage. Maybe it was the not-so-awesome job. Either way, P. Dickey decided it was time to become an educated man and went off and enrolled at the University of California, Berkeley. He took courses in history, psychology, philosophy, and zoology. Damn. <laughs> and then something became apparent. Yeah, I know. It sounds pretty good to start, right? Yeah. But then something became apparent. P. Dickey's not one to make long commitments. He was in school from September 1949 until January 1950. <laughs> four months. Those were all the classes he took. Well, he was very busy for months then, I guess. At which point he received an honorable dismissal from the university, which is not anything I had heard of before, but he got one. <laughs> he got an honorable discharge from college? Honorable, honorable dismissal. Yeah, yeah, but what's the honorable part? Like, it wasn't that he was, like, expelled. He was honorably dismissed? From, what does that mean? From my understanding, it meant he could go back. <laughs> In the future. If you get your shit together, maybe come yeah. back. I've never heard that before. His third wife would write in her own biography that P. Dickey was likely suffering from, an, from anxiety at this point in his life, which led to the erratic behavior, but it was something that was never really addressed because, you know, reasons. She also said that he disliked the ROTC training required by the school. His short time at Berkeley was fruitful, however, as he got to know a poet, Robert Duncan, and a linguist, Jack Spicer, who would help Dick come up with some of the Martian languages that would appear in his later writings. The bit of philosophy he was introduced to helped him clarify his deep-seated belief that there is not necessarily a shared external reality, 
but rather our individual existences are based on our own internal perceptions. Dick referred to himself as a, quote, cosmic panthen... Panantheist. Pantheist? Panatheist. Pantheist. In short, these are the people who believe, quote, all is God, or that everything is an extension of God. Combining these personal beliefs with the readings of Plato, Dickey came to the conclusion that the world is not entirely real, and there's no way to confirm or deny what is real, or what is capital T true. These are general themes he would explore and wrestle with in his works for decades to come. After leaving school, he began to focus on his writing. He sold his first story titled Rouge in 1951 when he was 23. What now? Rouge. He says that's spelled? R-O-O-G. Huh. Rouge is a story from the point of view of a loyal pup who believed that the garbage men who came every Friday morning were stealing valuable food, which the family had carefully stored away in safe metal containers. <laughs> and I mean, the dog is not completely wrong. <laughs> After selling his first story, he fully transitioned to writing and did that as his major source of income. The next year, he published stories in two issues of Planet Stories and one story in each of If and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. His first novel, Solar Lottery, was published in 1955 when he was 27. The synopsis of Solar Lottery is great. On a strange, barely habitable world, society is dominated by percentages and the lottery. Lotteries choose who is the world's leader, but it also chooses people known as assassins, who are hell-bent on killing the leader, who is also known as Quizmaster. <laughs> That's what got me. The Quizmaster! <laughs> the protagonist is chosen to be an assassin and must decide what to do. Because he didn't want to have to kill anybody. An early reviewer said of the text, quote, Dick has created a strange and highly convincing and self-consistent future society. Like many writers early in their career, P. Dickey struggled to pay the bills. He reflected later in life, we couldn't even pay the late fees on a library book. This was not the time of sipping cognac or racing Porsches. Oh, oh. God damn it! Yeah, God, yeah, yeah. yeah you snuck you snuff one by me. <laughs> See, it's all over, right? <laughs> he dreamed of becoming a mainstream writer and making money, and even wrote some non-genre pieces to try to help with that, to no major success. He wrote in 1960 at 32 that he was willing to, quote, take 20 to 30 years to succeed as a literary writer. That journey lasted three years, so a longer commitment. And in 1963, the Scott Meredith Literacy Agency returned all 12 of his unsolved mainstream novels and told him, essentially, Mainstream writing was not for him. Ouch. Of the 12 non-science fiction novels that were returned to him, the only one that was published later on in his life was Confessions of a Crap Artist, which is about Jack Isidore, who is a socially awkward, oppressive-compulsive tire regruber who has been essentially brainwashed by anti-science folks of his day. Huh. Yeah? Well, hold on to that one, guys. Keep, keep that gentleman in your head. All was not bad for P. Dickey, though, as in the same year, 1963, when he was told mainstream writing was not for him, he won a Hugo Award for his novel, The Man in the High Castle, once again proving, if you're a starving artist, World War II is replete with creative fuel. <laughs> we ain't going nowhere. We ain't going nowhere. We can't stop. Okay, that's another, now. yeah, yeah. Because it's bad uh -huh. boy for life. Still... Even though P. Dickey was seen by fellow writers as a true and worthwhile artist, that still did not help him pay the bills. He relied on the help of fellow sci-fi author Robert Heinlein, 
Is that how we say the name? I'm pretty sure. Robert Heinlein, even though he was not enthused to be helped by Heinlein saying, quote, I don't agree with any ideas he puts forth in his writing, but that is neither here nor there. He added, Heinlein knows I'm a flipped out freak and still helped me and my wife when we were in trouble. That is the best in humanity there. That is who and what I love. Yeah, Heinlein was definitely more, because he was more from like the older kind of school and he was uh, a good deal more like buttoned up and, and whatnot. And he, he was not a flipped out freak, mama. <laughs> Heinlein, for my understanding, served in the military, which was a big no-no here for old Dickie. That oh. made Heinlein the man. Well, yeah, you fought I, in World the, War II, you're an asshole. Well, okay, but like think about the time, yeah. It was the 50s. Yeah. It wasn't the 60s yet. Well, yeah, no, even if it was not the 60s yet, like, that was still, you still had, like, the countercultural movement, like, starting then. I suppose. During the 1950s and 1960s, P. Dickey would marry three times. Cleo, and I'm sorry, Cleo, you're probably dead, but if Cleo's family's out there, Cleo Apostolides. Let me see. Apostolides? Let me see. Right at the very top. Apostolides? Cleo Apostolidis, who was suspected by the FBI of being a socialist, Anne Williams Rubenstein, mother of Dick's first child, Laura Archer Dick, and Nancy Hackett, mother of Dick's second child, Isa Dick Hackett. Isa Dick. Isa Dick Hackett. She's alive. Don't hunt us down, Isa. I'm sorry. All of the marriages lasted between six to nine years. We do know that Dickie was physically abusive with his third wife, Anne Rubenstein. After an argument in 1963, he attempted to push her off a cliff in a car. Jesus Christ. He then later claimed she was trying to kill him. He was actually able to persuade a uh, psychiatrist to commit his wife involuntarily based on his testimony. Ha! Huh. Th- them's words, where's the times? He said later in life, quote, Anne and I were having dreadful, violent fights, slamming each other around, smashing every object in the house. The kids were running in terror. Someone might call getting his wife committed... A dick move. But really, it's abusive, sick, and wrong. <laughs> and hey, it's not like he learned a lot from that first failed attempt, because in 1964, after divorcing Rubenstein, since I guess trying to shove someone off a cliff displays irreparable marital differences... It might, yeah. He moved to Oakland to live with a fan, author, and editor, Grania Davis, who he attempted to kill when he attempted suicide by driving off a road while she was a passenger in a car with him. Jesus! What the fucking automotive bit? Like, God. <laughs> Woof. That did not work either. For someone lauded for his creativity, dude had a one-track mind. <laughs> I'm gonna commit suicide. Can you let me out first, possibly? The attempt left him seriously hurt and unable to move as he was in a full body cast for several months. Dang. Yeah, it's like one of those cartoons. Yeah, that's what I was... Soon after, because... Love was still in the air. Hasn't worked yet, but that's okay. Hope springs eternal, baby. Soon after, he married Nancy Hackett. During this marriage, he wrote to a friend, quote, Loss of memory. Had Nancy hide my gun. Bees in head. Delusion was that an alien outside force was controlling my mind and directing me to commit suicide. It was during this marriage Isa was born. Are, are we, we're just going to jump over Oh, we're, we're going to get to this. Okay. Because someone probably could have, I mean, you know, as if the other stuff didn't tip you off, could have stood to be medicated, it sounds like. Uh, it was during this marriage that Isa was born. P. Dickey lamented this as he had, quote, a tendency to hate babies. <clears throat> Yet Isa said of her father, quote, he had a fantastic sense of humor and he could be very charming. He was gifted intellectually and yet so emotionally fragile. He suffered from terrible bouts of anxiety and depression. 
She also concluded, quote, he was someone who tended to consider a lot of things that could go wrong and scenarios that could take us to really bad places. His friends painted pictures of him as a man who, when angry, would stamp his feet, wave his gun around, and rip off his shirt, quote, like the Incredible Hulk. That's very specific. Dick more or less became a recluse, trying to stay out of the social and political limelight of the 1960s. He did let his anti-Vietnam sentiments be known. In 1968, he joined the Writers and Editors War Tax Protest, an anti-war pledge to pay no U.S. federal income tax, which resulted in the IRS confiscating his car. Later in life, he wrote about his madness in a lighthearted way, as others refer to it as his gift. His madness, or gift, likely being schizophrenia and an addiction to speed. You know, what's a bit of attempted murder and suicide between friends, lovers, and spouses? See, I was gonna, I was gonna say that it sounded vaguely schizophrenic. I didn't really want to be like an armchair psychiatrist or whatever, but uh, yeah, it sounds like schizophrenia. And also, he was hooked on speed. <laughs> While we do know he did seek treatment here and there, we also know taking these issues head on made him uncomfortable. And we can't make cishet dudes uncomfortable. That'd be the most grievous sin of all. <laughs> During his final years, when he was more agoraphobic than not, he wrote works like "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," "A Scanner Darkly." and flow my tears, the policeman said. Around the time he wrote Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, he was said to have become obsessed with a herd of sheep around his California home. He was taking 70 pills a day. Whoa. A mix of speed, volume, and tranquilizers. Just, you know, one to each one to try to cancel out the other, yeah. and then he just ends up at the perfect equilibrium. Perfect balance. Oh my god. He left his wife, moved into what was essentially a drug den, and prowled around the house late at night, holding a gun, peering from behind the blinds, looking for trouble. He would call the police to claim that aliens were out to get him, and he had become an android and was a danger to humankind. Jeez, crazy. He floated in and out of psychiatric wards. He attempted suicide twice more. He then decided to kick the drug habit. He said at the time, quote, The reward for the life of a writer is not happiness, but sudden death or disability. Grim. He also entered into his fifth marriage in 1973 when he was 45 and his final wife, Tessa Busby, was 18. Mm. In a true love story. Don't like that. His pet name for her was Dummy. I shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> I really shouldn't laugh at that. The marriage lasted four years, during which time the Tessa said he would get, get this, Meg, mood swings, throw no. things around, and he spoke about how he claimed he had been contacted by creatures You've been contacted by creatures. You've been, you've been contacted by creatures from outer space via a... <laughs> from creatures from outer space via a beam of pink light. One called Zebra told him that time had stopped moving during the Roman Empire and that his existence was an illusion. Yeah, that sounds like schizophrenia. On February 17th, 1982, P. Dickey conducted an interview and afterwards he called his therapist to say he was having a hard time seeing and that his eyesight was failing. His therapist told him to go to a hospital immediately. Instead, he tried to sleep it off. It's a weird thing to call your th Like, hey, hey, therapist, I can't see. Yeah. I think I might be going blind. Instead, he tried to sleep it off. Shockingly, he was found the next morning unresponsive due to suffering a stroke. He remained on life support until his death March 2nd, 1982, about a month later. He died with few belongings, no will, and no money. His children, Laura, Isa, and Christopher, owned the rights to his stories. He was buried in Riverside Cemetery in Fort Morgan, Colorado, next to his twin Jane, where the tombstone with his name on it was waiting for him the whole time. Dang. We can go see him. We can go see him. 
He died about four months before the film Blade Runner was released. His daughter Isa, then 15, remembers going to see the film and said, There were two other people in the whole theater. The movie was a total failure. The lights came up before the dedication at the end, so I didn't even get to see that. It was a double slap in the face. Jeez. We could certainly talk more about Blade Runner and some of his other adaptations, and we will, but for now, we gotta move on. Megan, help us investigate the questions surrounding androids and their relationship to Marit, the electric sheep. <laughs> Without further ado, the androids, as they may or may not be dreaming. Welcome to scenic dystopian San Francisco, where the world has been largely irradiated following what is referred to as World War Terminus. Most people now live off-world, where things suck substantially less on planets like Mars in places called New New York. It's New New York. Man, man, Dick wasn't giving folks a lot of credit there, but sure. That's different than Old New York. (laughs) And then New New Old New New York. York. Uh, those who have to continue their sad sack lives on Earth get regularly tested to make sure they're still regulars and not specials who have become either too physically or mentally damaged by radiation and aren't allowed to reproduce or travel off-world. Yikes. And some are sneeches and some are sneeches with stars on their belly. Some are irradiated sneeches. Uh, Rick Deckard and his wife, Iran, awaken in their bed and just immediately begin bickering at each other about fucking with the settings of their respective... Moved organs. Uh, Baby, you're, you're gonna hear them on the whole recording. You're gonna hear them a little bit. It's okay. I'm still people, thinking of people Iran. like it. It's like ASMR. And I ran, <laughs> I ran so far away. I sent my mood organs. <laughs> so mood organs are machines that let you automate and customize your feelings, which is some peak 1960s, 70s sci-fi. Someday we will take antidepressants and be like that one movie, Equilibrium type shit. <laughs> no, no, you're missing the point. The mood organ, there's a couple hints here, Meg. Yeah. The organ being the big one. Yeah. It's a Hitachi magic wand. It makes everybody happy. Well, no, because you can set it to make you sad on purpose, which you, which you, which Iran often does. It's called the edge setting. <laughs> uh, there's a little exchange here that I want to quote. It's literally on like the first page uh, when Decker reaches out to pat Iran's shoulder and she says, Get your crude cop's hand away. I'm not a cop. He felt irritable now, although he hadn't dialed for it. You're worse, his wife said, her eyes still shut. You're a murderer hired by the cops. I've never killed a human being in my life. His irritability had risen now and become outright hostility. Iran said, just those poor Andes. I noticed you never had any hesitation as to spending the bounty money I bring home on whatever momentarily attracts your attention. He rose, strode to the console of his mood organ. Instead of saving, he said, so we could buy a real sheep to replace that fake electric one upstairs. A mere electric animal and me earning all that I've worked my way up to through the years. So, like, A, we basically get almost, like, a title drop on the first page. I don't know how often that happens. And, like, so much useful information is dumped on you in a very short exchange. Uh, Deckard and Iran don't like each other. Having alive, like, actual animals is a status symbol. Deckard uh, works for the cops as an android bounty hunter. It's also interesting how Iran refers to them as those poor Andes in, like, such a sympathetic way even going so far as to say that destroying them is indistinguishable from an act of murder. So it's not necessarily normalized. <laughs> Are they Andes with an I or Andes with a Y? Y. Whoa. 
Deckard then surreptitiously sets his wife or his wife's mood organ to quote pleased acknowledgement of husband's superior wisdom in all matters. <laughs> Which is funny in how petty and stupid it is, and gives us a good amount of insight into Deckard. It's also this is this is a very dark, sad book, but it is also really funny in places. Yeah, it gives us an insight into Deckard, who's wildly insecure and incredibly self-conscious about like his place in the world and how people perceive him. Uh, we see more of this when he goes onto the roof of their apartment to pretend to tend to his and Iran's fake sheep for the purposes of fooling their neighbors. I guess. It's kind of like owning a fake Rolex or a knockoff Gucci bag, but it requires significantly more commitment. Like, it even eats, like, fake oats and shit. Uh, his neighbor's also on the roof, tending to his actually alive horse, which is pregnant. And Deckard's like, please, please, let me buy your horse, or the baby horse, or something. I had a real sheep once, but it died of tetanus, and now my sheep is fake and my life is hell. And his neighbor's like, no. And he suggests Deckard go more within his price range. Get like a cricket or a mouse. And Deckard is like, fuck you, I hope your horse dies. Harsh. <laughs> Which is great. And then he goes to work calculating how many androids he would have to retire to afford a new sheep. So it's important at this point of the story, that's how he views androids. A means to get sheep money. In the meantime, we learn more about how much Earth sucks shit now, and that no one remembers why the war happened or who even won because it feels like everybody lost we learn that android servants are offered to regulars as incentive to emigrate off planet and i find it kind of nuts that people would need extra incentive beyond not living in an irradiated hell world but clearly it's still an issue they make to get a flu shot we got to give people you know 20 hour coupons and safe play yeah okay yeah you got me there <laughs> Or to get the COVID shot, we had to give away cars. Yeah, we had to give them free donuts. Free donuts, that was a good one. <laughs> in a decrepit, mostly abandoned apartment building, we meet, maybe this is sound familiar to you, John Isidore, uh, who has been recently reclassified as a special. Specifically, he's been diagnosed with chicken head. Not not in like, act like a chick, like he got, he, he done got the brain scramblies. Um, he's therefore not allowed to emigrate because his genes are mutated is all fuck. It'd be good if he had a chicken head. It would be good if he had, like, an actual... That'd be much more fun. He walked around like, um... Am I gonna let you work this one out? Because I, I don't know. I, I need more if you want me to help you. Hey, hey. <laughs> Alright, for the remainder of this, if you want to picture this character of John Isidore walking around with the head of the, the, the real dumb chicken from Moana... <laughs> Feel free to do so. Former tire recruiter. It was a respectable <laughs> job at the time, you see. You see. Uh, he actually works at a repair shop for robot animals. And we see him use another, like, peak 60, 70s sci-fi invention called an empathy box, where you can merge with people also using the box and experience others, like, feelings. So they all, like, feel things together. And he and a bazillion other folks merge and experience this dude Wilbur Mercer climbing up a mountain. I'd say this is like a super ham-fisted metaphor for social media, but social media would not exist for several decades. So, like, good job, Philip K. Dick, on, on peeping the horrors yet to come. Uh, well, it could have been, like, TV. No, because there's also TV. Like, there's regular TV as well. It's like the shared dream thing, you know, that we did in Inception. We all plug in. We all feel together. <laughs> They, 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 do, they do all feel together because uh, after Mercer gets hit with a rock, Isidore disconnects and finds that he is also, like, hurt and bleeding in the same place. Oh, Matrix rules. But don't worry about that. More interestingly, he hears the sound of movement, indicating a new neighbor in the otherwise empty building. 
Meanwhile, after ogling an ostrich in a pet store window, Deckard gets to work and is informed by his boss that the department's senior bounty hunter, a dude named Dave Holden, is in the hospital after getting shot in the back, which Deckard is stoked about. He's like, fuck yeah, because it means Dave's cases will go to him, which means he can ask, how much is that ostrich in the window? Mer, mer. Because I'm going to buy it with my android blood money. Mer, mer. <laughs> While visions of ostriches dance in Deckard's mind, his boss explains that Dave had been hunting down eight escaped Nexus 6 androids. Uh, see, I thought he could uh, explain how the ostrich is the biggest whitelist bird. <laughs> no, no. It, but his, it his, can his, run like 35 miles an hour. His boss doesn't care about ostriches, uh, but he managed to take down two before getting shot. Ostriches? Androids. <laughs> it's very important you keep these straight. <laughs> And, and here's how, if you're not sure, you can tell uh, androids from ostriches using the Voight-Kampf test. It's an empathy test used to identify androids. However, these new androids, these Nexus 6 guys, are so sophisticated that the Voight-Kampf test might not even actually work on them. So with that in mind, Deckard is tasked to go to the headquarters of the Rosen Association, the company that makes the bots, for a test run. He flies his car there and is greeted by 18-year-old Rachel Rosen, and immediately distracted by an owl they have on display, because unless it's something on a small child's spin and say, Deckard cannot be bothered to give a shit about it. He's like, fuck, owl, yes! Uh, Gimme. Question, I never read this. Do we go to anti-Semitism? I'm worried hearing Rosen, and this is the bad company. Yeah, uh, that's that's honestly pretty much the gist of it, is they are the bad company and they have the last name Rosen. So uh, I, I guess you could just sort of construe anti-Semitism from there, yeah, but, but, that's, but that's as deep as it goes. But, uh, so no hook noses, no blood libel. <laughs> uh, well, no, no blood libel, but it, it's, it get, we'll, we'll get into it. So Rachel pries him away from the owl, and, and she's pissy about having Deckard there at all doing the test because it looks bad for the company. We meet Eldon Rosen, Rachel's grandfather and the oh, head shit. of the company. Oh, I thought his name was actually Eldon Rosen. I'm no. like, that's good. <laughs> no, no, that is his name. E-L-D-O-N. Oh, all right. Eldon Rosen. And he reveals that Deckard will be testing Rachel herself. Deckard hooks her up to a bunch of sensors and proceeds with the questions. RJ, would you like to undergo the Voight-Kampf test and see if you're an android? Sure. I've been edging myself all day, so. <laughs> all right. So he does, he says, going to outline a number of social situations. You're going to express your reaction to each as quickly as possible. Okay. All right. You're given a calfskin wallet on your birthday. Thank you. Did <laughs> you know that that's the wrong answer? Hey, you're supposed to not ex- accept it and get, uh, report the person who gave it to you to the police. You have a little boy. Why? You're going to see a common theme with these. Just hang in. You have a little boy and he shows you his butterfly collection, including his killing jar. I show him a dick. What? In a box. What? What? I say, hey, hey, that's illegal. You got to go to the police. And then I take him by his ear like I'm like an old grandmother and I drag him to the (laughs) cops. And I say, cops, I got a criminal here and I want him put to death. You're sitting watching TV, and suddenly you discover a wasp crawling on your wrist. Am I big, or is the white guy small? No, a wa- <laughs> I call the police and say I have a KKK member here. In a magazine, you come across a full-page color picture of a nude girl. Oh, like- God. Oh, flying oh, oh, face oh, down on a oh, large and beautiful oh, bear skin oh, rug. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> 
Your husband hangs the picture up on the wall of his study. Yeah. <laughs> so in the conceit, I love that guy. The idea is like I give him a high five and say, "Hubby, we should both stroke into this one every night," and then we do. <laughs> I like it. Me and my hubby, we just stand around this picture and we just gunk on the wall. You're reading a novel written in the old days before the war. The characters are visiting Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. They become hungry and enter a seafood restaurant. One of them orders a lobster, and the chef drops the lobster into the tub of boiling water while the characters watch. Oh, it makes a sound. David Foster Wallace is all over this shit. That's wrong. It feels a lot of pain. Also, you're eating a bug, right? Like, it is try... It is technically a bug. It's yeah. a delicious bug. Yeah. No. Lobster's not delicious. The butter's delicious. You slather anything in that much butter, it's going to be pretty good. So, I mean, we get the gist here. There's like 10 more questions and they all involve whether or not she's going to emotionally respond to weird dead animal shit. I don't know if you're an android, but there's something wrong with you. <laughs> in the eyes of an angel, tell me why. I don't know the, the either way. I don't either. Um, so after Rachel, you know, like she has the correct verbal responses, but she fails to properly respond to these dead animal related questions on a biometric level that she's not actually like horrified or disgusted that or whatever. That pussy didn't shrivel up. Nope. It got wet. So Deckard, de ew. Deckard declares that Rachel has tested positive for robot. Eldon is like, uh, no, lol, she's a person. She just has no social skills because she was born in space. Your test is broken and bad. And Deckard is like, I don't believe you. Give me your bone marrow. And Rachel's like, excuse me? When Deckard refuses to give up and comply with their demand to stop using what they're saying is a flawed test, they then try to pay him off with an owl. And Deckard manages to restrain himself and tricks Rachel into revealing herself by saying his suitcase is made of babies. And she doesn't freak out fast enough. So he's like, aha, robot. <laughs> like she puts her hand on the suitcase and he's like, you like that? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, it's baby hide. <laughs> it's like, I feel like a person would be like, what? It's nice and smooth. <laughs> I can smell it. You gotta keep it. You gotta keep the powder on it smooth baby finish and Eldon's like yeah okay fine she's a robot and she didn't know she was because we programmed her so good you have outsmarted us to what end I have no fucking idea like this whole scene is so weird I don't get exactly like what the Rosens wanted apart from tricking Deckard about robot but like why if they could trick Dicky, they could trick anybody <laughs> shit, shit, shits and giggles or something Dicky Deckard Either way, Deckard now knows for sure that the test will work on even the most cutting edge of androids and is off to hunt down the six fugitive Andes. Back at Isidore's apartment, he meets the new arrival, a skinny young woman who is acting very uncomfortable. Isidore asks her name and she says, uh, Rachel Rosen. And he's like, oh shit, the Rachel Rosen from the Rosen Association? To which she goes, uh, no, just kidding, it's Pris Stratton. Yes. <laughs> Isidore's like, yeah, okay, sure, that's normal for going off to work and trying to fix a sick cat. Except that he can't find the plugs or a way to its control panel, and it's not until it dies that someone else comes by and is like, yo, that was a real, actual cat. It, it, it don't got plugs. And Isidore's boss berates him for not knowing the difference between a real and a robot cat, and one of his co-workers defends Isidore by saying that he can't tell the difference because they're all real to him. Aww. Aww. Uh, but also now there's, there's still a dead cat. Isidore informs the owner, who requests an electric version as a replacement to fool her husband. 
It's all very symbolic. It did kind of fuck with me when I read it for the first time. Like, of all the things that I remember about this book, which was not a lot, never forgot that scene. Yeah, you know, parents, they always replace the goldfish with another goldfish. It's slightly different, <laughs> but good enough. Yeah. Close enough. Deckard is meant to be teaming up with a Soviet cop named Sandor to catch one of the androids who's named uh, Polakov. But when he meets Sandor, who's like, ooh, check out my cool Soviet gun, Deckard's like, aha, you can't trick me, android. And yeah, it's Polakov, apparently, and Deckard kills him. That's one down, five to go. Next on the list is Luba Luft, an opera-singing android. Rachel uh, calls him and asks if he wants to use her Nexus 6 powers to, like, help him catch the rest of the escapees. And he's like, I don't need you and your robot help. Fuck off. So he goes to the opera house and is like, hi, I'm police. I'm here to empathy test you. And Luba first is like, well, what makes you think I'm an android? How do you know you're not an android? Hmm? And Deckard tells her that he knows because he took the test. Because all bounty hunters have to. And she says, yeah, but how do you know that's not a false memory? Hmm? And then she keeps fucking with the test by, like, answering his questions wrong or with more questions. And it's really good. I'm just gonna highlight a few. That he tries to do the thing about you discover a a wasp crawling on your wrist. And she's like, what's a wasp? And he's like, a a bug. It's a stinging bug that flies. Oh, I've never heard of that. What? Wasp? What? My English. It's not good. And he's like, your English seems fine. And she's like, oh, that's my accent. I just, I don't know words. And he's like, you're you're watching an old movie on TV, a movie from before the war. It shows a banquet in progress. The entree consists of boiled dogs stuffed with rice. Nobody would kill a cat and a dog, Lubaluff said. They're worth a fortune. But I could guess it would be an imitation dog, right? But those are made of wires and motors. They can't be eaten. And he's like, before the war. Well, I wasn't alive before the war. But surely you've seen old movies on TV. Was this movie made in the Philippines? I was going to say, this is China, man. (laughs) That's why I said, he was like, why? Because they used to have boiled dog stuffed rice in the Philippines. I remember reading that. Uh, He says, but your response. He said, I want your social, emotional, moral reaction. She says, to the movie? I'd turn it off. Why would you turn it off? Well, who wants to watch an old movie set in the Philippines? (laughs) He's just like, I hate this. I hate this. And this goes on and it's really fucking funny. (laughs) because she just says stuff like that and then finally she's like wait a bunch of these questions are about sex i don't think you're a real cop at all i think you're a dirty pervert man i'm calling the police yeah (laughs) um no call me daddy no decker says go for it the police all know me they know my questions (laughs) (laughs) they know i'm a dirty bird (laughs) they're into it too except the cop that shows up uh is like i've never seen you before in my life (laughs) Deckard's like, okay, fine, let's go down to the station and figure this out, and you'll see that I'm a real bounty hunter. And the uh, officer agrees. He gets into his police car and flies in the opposite direction of the station. <laughs> Deckard done got bamboozled. But he still follows this, He follows him to the fake police station, which actually looks a lot like an actual police station, and is interrogated by a cop named Garland, who, hmm, that's interesting, was the next name on Deckard's Android hit list. And Garland is like, yo, this is awkward, but, like, I'm not a robot. I'm starting to think you might be, though, buddy. And he calls in another bounty hunter named Phil Resch, and they interrogate Deckard together, who eventually agrees to be tested. Resch leaves to go get the test, and then Garland pulls a gun on Deckard, like, hey, guess what? I'm totally an android. Also, this is a fake police station. It's an android-run operation, specifically to fight bounty hunters. Resh doesn't know this, and also doesn't know that he's an android too, because he has artificial memories, and we think it's super funny, don't ruin this for us. 
Then Resh comes in and shoots Garland before Garland can kill Deckard. And he's like, what the fuck was that about? And Deckard tells him that his boss was an android, but leaves out all the other stuff. And Resh is like, man, I can't believe I was working for androids this whole time. Beep, bop, boop, boop. Surely this is the wildest revelation I will experience today. And Deckard's like, mm-hmm, yeah, totally. Let's go get Luba Luft. Beep, up, boop, boop, boop. <laughs> I've never noticed how much you beep. <laughs> I'm going to go plug myself in for a little bit. I'm feeling a little drained. <laughs> On the way there, Resh is like, okay, um, this is going to sound crazy, but maybe you should give me the Voink Cop test after we catch Luba. Like, just to be safe. Just for laughs. Because I couldn't possibly be a robot. I have a squirrel, and I love him so much. Uh, they find Luba not on the run, but at a museum. Specifically at an Edward Munch exhibit. That's the, the dude who did the scream. She uh, agrees to leave with Deckard, but only if he buys her a copy of the painting she was looking at, which is called Puberty, and is a very stark painting of a naked girl who, who looks like she is not feeling it. Here, let me show you it. That's all puberty. Like the one where they cover the titties. <laughs> <laughs> now it's proper. She's got like a creepy shadow. I don't know. I don't, I, I just, yeah, I don't know if this context helps. So, uh, Deckard actually does buy the print for her and she's like okay you got me i'm an android but i've always wanted to be a real girl uh, and she says that was also really nice of you to buy me that like that's a nice human thing to do an android definitely wouldn't do it like that guy and she points to rash and is like that asshole would never because he's an android and rash is like fuck you i'm extremely human and normal and then he shoots and kills luba and she screams and it's very terrible Deckard burns the print, and Resh is like, you could have just kept that for yourself, like, you paid for it. And Deckard says that it doesn't feel right, and also that he's in the money now anyway, with three dead androids under his belt, and Resh is like, uh, bro, I think you mean one, I killed the other two? And Deckard, sensing that his shiny new ostrich is in jeopardy, is like, yeah, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because you can't collect on them, because you're also an android! Ha-ha! Whoa. Except... Except... Except that Resh takes the test and he's a human. <laughs> Did they take his bone marrow? Yeah, they, I think they do both the things. Like, he, he is a human. And I guess the other androids were just fucking with both of them. And Deckard is like, you're human, but your startling lack of empathy had me so sure you were an android. And then Philip K. Dick says, do you get it? Do you get it? The human is the emotionless killer. And now Deckard is wondering if the fact that he feels empathy towards androids means there's something wrong with him. Do you get it? Society? Meanwhile, Isidore and Pris are hanging out and he asks her if she has any friends. And she says, yeah, seven actually. Wink. And starts crying, saying that a bounty hunter's after them. And they all ran away from Mars, which sucks actually. Isidore still hasn't clocked her as an android and says he'll protect her just as her two friends show up. Shoy. Showed up. <laughs> just as her two friends show up. Roy and Ermgard. Batty. Ermgard. See that? No. That's. No. Beep, 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 beep. No. Ermgard. Ermgard? Ermgard. I R M G A R D. Ermgard. She's not in the movie. <laughs> They tell Pris that the three of them are all that's left of the escapees, and so they have to stick together. Eventually, it finally clicks with Isidore that his new friend group are all robots. But he's like, eh, fuck it, y'all are nicer to me than humans anyway. Meanwhile, Rick heads home, but not before picking up a for-real alive goat. Iran is fucking stoked and grabs the empathy box to share her good-good goat feelings with her fellow man. But not even his cool new goat can cheer Deckard up from his ethical existential crisis. 
He tells his wife that he now understands why she hated his job and that starting tomorrow, he's going to get a new one. Except... Not allowed. Not quite. Except... I mean, you you want to try to get, you know, you want, mm, you want to give anything? He dies. No. Except then Deckard's boss calls with a lead on the remaining androids that they're holed up in an abandoned apartment building. And Deckard's like, shit, what do I do? And he takes the empathy box and he sees that dude Mercer from before, who I admittedly haven't explained super well. Because, like, he's also kind of like a deity of some sort that everybody sort of, like, gloms onto. Uh, because I think the real Mercer's supposed to be dead anyway. And the, the projection and or god Mercer tells Deckard that he's never truly alone. But also there is no salvation. Go kill those androids. Do it. <laughs> and he does. But first he calls Rachel for help. What kind of help? Sexual uh, healing. Yeah. They go to a hotel beforehand and Rachel has bourbon and they get drunk, which feels like a stupid thing to program an android to be able to do. Like if you were making your, your fake robot person, why would you give them the ability to like get drunk? It's the fit in. It would be pretty sus if they <laughs> drank and didn't. She says that she and Pris are the exact same model. And so Deckard feels kind of weird about like murdering her. Pris, I mean, because she looks like Rachel. And she gives Deckard a device that can render an android temporarily catatonic and is like, hey, have sex with me. And Deckard is like, I, um, no? Your consciousness is not what keeps me from doing that. And she says, if you do it, I'll kill Pris. So he does. There's, there's so much to unpack here. I don't know where to start. I can't even really get hung up on the thing that I usually do, which is the teenager thing. Because I guess, you know, she's not really a teenager. She's like four, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but she has the memories of the fake memories of a teenager. And also just to say like, you know, Philip K. Dick, way to fall into the gross, that fucking male thing where it's like, the teenage girl is the sexy femme fatale initiating the super creepy sex because that makes it okay, I guess. It's so gross. It's so gross. So yeah, they fuck and drive off to go kill some Andes. Deckard's like, if you were a real flesh girl, I would marry you so hard. Man, she must have been good. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Rachel's like, yeah, that's cute. Um, I know. I know I'm real good in bed. Because uh, this was all a ploy to get you to stop hunting androids. Because I've known that I'm an android. That's not news to me. I also have an almost perfect record where every bounty hunter I have sex with can't bring himself to do any android murder afterwards. <laughs> She's just that good of a robo-lay. By just laying there? That she just ethically fixes them, I guess. So she was catatonic and this was still so good? No, 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 no. That thing she gave him wasn't for... Okay, wow, I realize where the confusion came from here. That thing she gave him is to go fight the other androids, not to oh. use on her while they have sex. <laughs> she I, didn't I, say I, I have this device that makes robots catatonic <laughs> have sex with me while I can't move. <laughs> okay, yeah, no. <laughs> Wires got crossed a little bit there. But anyway, Robo Pussy's so good, it, it reforms bounty hunters. Oh, yeah, they probably got, you know, motors and stuff in there. Hey, imagine. A sentient flashlight with like 300 different like areas of pivoting, suction, <laughs> pressure. And Deckard is like, excuse me, you've done this before? And she's like, yeah, nine times. <laughs> Didn't you feel it all in there? It doesn't go anywhere. The oh, God. <laughs> the only time it didn't work was with this asshole, 
Phil Resch. <laughs> anyway, those androids are my friends. Please don't kill them. And Deckard is like, I'm going to kill them and you because you made my dick sad. But instead he just drops her off at a hotel. We go back to Isidore and the remaining androids and things get fucking weird, y'all. There's a report on TV that they're all watching that Mercer has been exposed as a fake actor tricking people on a soundstage. His name's like Al Jerry. And also Isidore finds a spider and is like, holy shit, an actual alive spider. But Pris and Ermagard are unimpressed and they think it has too many legs. They're like, it's being greedy. I bet it could walk with like half as many legs. And they, uh, they, they cut off some of its legs. And Isidore's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I guess maybe androids don't have empathy? Maybe? He tries to drown the spider to put it out of its misery, but then Mercer just appears and he tells Isidore that, yep, he's a fake and a phony, but it doesn't matter because people believe. And then he hands the spider back to Isidore and it magically has all its legs back. Nice. So take from, take what you will from that. And then an alarm sounds as Deckard arrives. And even after the whole spider debacle, Isidore refuses to give his new friends up. Deckard calls him a chicken head and heads down the hall. Also, Mercer appears again to Deckard like, look out, Rick, there's a robot up there. Mercer away! <laughs> just disappears. I'm kind of sad they couldn't figure out a way to work this shit into the movie because it's so goddamn weird. I love it. Anyway, with the power of Mercer and anime on his side, Deckard kills Pris, Roy, and Ermagard in short order. And as someone who only read the book after seeing the movie, I gotta say, it was pretty disappointing. Like, Roy Batty, as a uh, book character, is kind of a non-entity. He didn't feel the rain. <laughs> no, no tears in the rain. So with his job finally done, an exhausted Deckard returns home to find that someone fitting the exact description of Rachel Rosen has thrown his goat off the roof. <laughs> he leaves and drives off to the middle of nowhere, has a hallucinatory, potentially religious experience where he thinks he's permanently merged with Mercer. But then he finds a toad and is like, fuck yeah, toad! So he's kind of back to normal in the end. He brings it home and his wife is like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. It's an electric toad. And he's like, you know what? I'm fine with that. Electric things have their lives too. As he does the book equivalent of looking directly into the camera. The end. You know, I'm going to say immediately here on that note in particular. Mm -hmm. What Philip K. Dick foresaw uh -huh. is that in Star Wars, the most human characters of all were the two droids. I mean, yeah, I have a little bit from, like, this reading he did from, like, 1972. He had a, a famous speech uh, for 1972 called The Android and the Human, where he says, quote, Our environment, and I mean our man-made world of machines, artificial constructs, computers, electronic systems, interlinking, homeostatic components, all this is, in fact, beginning more and more to possess what the earnest psychologists fear the primitive sees in his environment, animation. In a very real sense, our environment is becoming alive, or at least quasi-alive, and in ways specifically and fundamentally analogous to ourselves. Rather than learning about ourselves by studying our construct constructs, perhaps we should make the attempt to comprehend what our constructs are up to by looking into what we ourselves are up to. In also the context of how in the novel, you know, the android antagonists are more human than the humans. <laughs> and yeah, all the ro that's like part of why the robots in Star Wars are the best characters in Star Wars, I guess. What does even speak English? better that way we love we love r2d2 we love bb8 even more we do because he's rounder and cuter he has, he has disney eyes <laughs> so uh adaptations 
Before we jump into the obvious ones, I just want to take a quick jaunt through some lesser-known adaptations of the novel, and uh, there are three sequels. Nice. I never knew this. Uh, These are considered official and canonical, and were written by a friend of Dick's named K.W. Jeter, and they are Blade Runner 2, The Edge of Human, which wasn't uh, published until 1995, Blade Runner 3, Replicant Knight, and Blade Runner 4, I and Talon. It can just count as a sequel when one it's not the author and two it's like 20 years after the author apparently uh the books apparently were meant to help retcon differences between the original book and the movie it mostly follows the plot of the movie and ends up wildly contradicting both uh in one of them i just wanted to say this is pretty good uh the plot is that quote living on mars deckard is acting as a consultant to a movie crew filming the story of his days as a blade runner he finds himself drawn into a mission on behalf of the replicants he was once assigned to kill. Which is wild. Uh, it also features that whole robots giving birth thing that's a major plot point in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, there was an Eisner-nominated 24-issue comic series in 2010. A stage play, also in 2010, which, like, fuck, I wish I could have seen that. That was probably weird as hell. Uh, the white zombie song, More Human Than Human, I guess. And okay, now we can talk about the movies! First one, Blade Runner, released in 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford as Deckard, with a famously troubled production and multiple versions. Um, do I need to explain the plot to Blade Runner? It's the same plot, pretty much. Kinda. Now he's just a Blade Runner. A quasi-cop out <laughs> to kill people. As far as I remember in the movie, though, he doesn't get to experience the magic puss. Yeah, he does. Did you have sex in yes. the movie? It's not in between the movies? They have sex. You just don't see it. Remember? Okay. So, yeah, he doesn't have a wife in this one. He's just a sad, lonely man. Uh, Rachel Tyrell, because now it's the Tyrell Corporation for whatever reason, is an adult. Well, is kind of an adult. Again, she might also be just four years old. <laughs> and he does, for- if you recall, he forces himself on her. Remember? She tries to leave. Oh, yeah. 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 But then eventually they have presumably consensual sex, I guess. It was when we watched that in class that one of my classmates uh, afterwards, the professor was like, you know, is there stuff that we want to talk about? Are there things, you know, it's like, well, we want to talk about that scene. That's a, that was a messed up scene. And one of the guys in class was like, yeah, I was watching it all like, is this bitch about to get raped? And we all turned and looked at it and we were like... <laughs> excuse me (laughs) like the professor just stared at him like boy what is wrong with you (laughs) his heart was in the right place he was empathetic but still human (laughs) so yeah the uh the movie definitely puts a lot more emphasis less on uh deckard needs to feel empathetic about robots and more is deckard also robot which the, the book more sort of toys with. What I think is interesting after rereading the book is how much the plot seems to hew much more towards Blade Runner 2049. Mm. Released in 2017, directed by uh, Den- Dennis, Denny? Denny Villanueva, and starring uh, Ryan Gosling as Kay, who is a replicant who is hunting other replicants for cops. Excuse you, it stars Anna de Armas. <laughs> it does star Anna de Armas. Mm. <laughs> Her best role, forty feet tall and naked. <laughs> she's in clothes for some of it. She's the she's the artificial intelligence owned by the artificial intelligence to make him feel more human. She's the goat. 
She is. She's his electric sheep is the thing. They have they, well, they have weird sex. They do have weird with sex. With a human in there. Yeah, they have a human surrogate for their weird sex. So, <laughs> we literally did this one because you're like, I want to talk about Blade Runners. The, the, the Blade Runners is. Well, we are, we're here now. We're at the Blade Runners is. Okay. What you got? Nothing. Really? Yeah. Nothing about the weird religious symbolism that doesn't... Well, there's some weird religious symbolism in the first one because you've got Roy Batty running around holding a dove for no reason. Is it a real dove? Well, that's the other thing, is the movie doesn't isn't interested in fake or real animals and stuff. I would say the first movie is pretty true to the idea of, like, a neo-noir sensibility. He's always just wet, miserable, and upset. I think uh, Blade Runner 2049 is, is interesting in the ways that it's more truer to the the book and the, the preoccupation with empathy and uh, who is capable of empathy. In the he's he's the android, but he's got the he's got the, the the AI girlfriend who also has lots of feelings. But then like the what's it the the new Tyrell who's just Jared Leto is is a fucked up monster man who does murders. <laughs> so it's kind of weird that he was obsessing over a real sheep when he wrote this. Yeah, it is kind of weird. Do you think this is autobiographical in a way? He thought he was a robot, then he was an alien, then he was abducted, and then he was like, ooh. Look at all these sheep outside. And this is what he comes up with. I mean, I mean this, yeah, this is entirely possible. Let's see, the thing about the first Blade Runner movie, the only robots we really had to work off of were Transformers and HAL. And I guess R2-D2 and the other one. C-3PO. So in the 1980s, you robots, especially as people, was kind of new. How to you know, figure them out a little bit. And so I think it was more like, huh. Look at these robots. They're weird. Kind of evil. Kind of want to kill them. Harrison Ford a robot, though. Uh-oh. Maybe I shouldn't think they're bad, because we kind of like Harrison Ford. All right, but then we fast forward now to Blade Runner 2049. Robots? Shit, we've been dealing with this shit for 40 years. Old hat. We know. We know robots at this point. Sometimes they're good, like Terminator 2. Sometimes they're bad, like Terminator 1. You know, and that's okay. Just like people could be good or bad, robots could be good or bad. You know, and so you can't use that through line anymore of robot good or robot bad. I've been there, done that. We, we've bypassed that culturally. Yeah, robots just as good as people, yeah. which are good or bad. Now it's more interesting. Well, what makes you you? Your memories? Well, then you're Ryan Gosling, who thought you were a human. You were the one. <laughs> That's a Blade Runner 2049. It's more focused on the internal rather than the external. It's a more internal journey, right? We got Ryan Gosling figuring out, well, damn, what makes me me? And then you got the Dream Maker over there all like, what makes me me? Because she has all these fake memories. She doesn't have any real memories. She was in a goddamn bubble. No, not even, a bubble inside of a warehouse. Yeah. Right. But she has this life that she lives and constructs, and then she gives it to other people. Right. And is that her life? Is it not her life? Whose life is it? Because it's really not anyone's, but yet it's everyone's at the same time. So the scope's very different. Also, Elvis is in twenty forty nine. Elvis cool, is. A what a cool cat. And statues of really big biddies. Yeah, it's, yep. And Anna de Armas. And it's also what happens to Vegas. It just turns more orange than it currently is. Yep. In the book, Deckard's thing is very internal, that he is deciding what makes people people. I mean, that's also like the whole thing we get with the cat is what made it, that it, it had worth to other people when they realized that it was a real cat, which they didn't realize until it was dead. 
but then it is also going to be replaced with an electric cat that to all appearances is going to be the same cat. Do you think it's what's maybe changed is back then commodifying things was seen as kind of bad? And now at this point, you know, we say, uh, fuck capitalism, but we're all in the system, baby. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there's something to that. Definitely, unfortunately. <laughs> I get to choose between Coke and Pepsi. I think a lot of the choices that were made in the original Blade Runner movie were based on what would be cool as opposed to necessarily a full adaptation of the story because it is less focused on android bad good, although that is like the prevailing theme and kind of more like, wouldn't it be sick to watch Harrison Ford and Rucker Hauer do a big fight on a roof while people like, while like, uh, what's her face? Daryl Hannah like prances around in like a unitard. Well, you gotta have all the cinematic trappings to make it interesting. You know, especially thinking of that movie and Ridley Scott, you know, I, we talked about how like in the greater EU that the Tyrell Corporation or whatever is an alien. The Way Waylon? Yeah, the, yeah. Supposedly they, inter they, they interact somehow out there in the world. So yeah, he kind of did, I guess he did an Android's Dream of Electric Sheep adaptation in the same way that Hao Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle was an adaptation of the book where he just kind of went, this is cool, this is cool, this is cool. Yeah, I don't need that other stuff. I'm gonna make this my own. And it's just the way that I think we were thinking like in the early days of robots and technology and the loss of humanity. What makes us human? Yeah, we were a lot more concerned about what makes us human back in the early days. And then I think about, I'm pretty sure we did this for the show. We did a Neuromancer, yeah? No, we never did Neuromancer. Uh, so thinking of Neuromancer, like thinking of like Dixie Flatline and then all the augmenting you could do to the body. Um, and then I think of you know, Watchmen, which is still also the 80s. And it's John Osterman's struggle on, is he human anymore? Is he not human anymore? Different than maybe technology. He could do different things than computers, but just still the same kind of journey. And science did it to him. Mm, okay. So yeah, I think there was definitely more of a preoccupation with like, what will humans be? Will we be more machine than man? And that's bad, I guess. And now we've kind of reached a point where it's like, we've got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> like you were mentioning before how Philip K. Dick gave the whole speech, like we got to look at our environment. Yeah. And so I think a how, which you never seen. Nope. Um, you, that you, he mean, controls mean, the spaceship. Two, he controls 2001. The yeah. <laughs> so he controls the doors. He controls like that whole space environment that they're in. And we don't know how to actually read the machine. And that's what's scary. We don't know what Hal's going to do. We created Hal, but we don't know. Now it's thinking. It's like, so we're creating this environment and we don't know exactly what it's going to do. And that's the whole thing with like the Voight Kampf test. Like we need something to reliably tell us that something's not human. And that's why that whole bit with Resh is great. Where it's like, yes, clearly you know, he's been told like this is this is an android man. He's an asshole. He has no empathy. He does bad things. Nope. Turns out he's a person. As uh, <laughs> someone who I believe is open about their mental health struggles. Do you read this at all? As someone who is writing about mental health struggles. And it's about people who do not have mental health struggles and those who do. And that is really a big take on. Mental illness. I think you could definitely do a neurodivergent reading of it. Especially, yeah, the preoccupation of, of who does and does not have empathy and also what empathy means and functions as. Um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. I'm, I'm coming up empty. <laughs> I don't know. No, I can't figure out how to say that. It's the basis it. of it all. Is it just about authority equals bad? Because there's no one who could ever really be in the authoritative spot. They're like inside the story... Even the people who are supposed to be able to tell robot from human can't even tell if they're a robot or human reliably. 
and that whoever you put in that position isn't going to be able to. And so maybe in his own life, if he questioned uh, the ability of therapists and doctors, you say, I'm sick. You're the sick ones, asshole. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And then what's interesting is then if you jump to 2049, where the robots can have babies, they're now functionally indistinguishable from people on pretty much every level. <laughs> that they age, they give birth, like, there is no difference anymore. <laughs> oh, they die a little sooner. And they got serial numbers on their bones. You know what I mean. <laughs> some sneeches got the stars, some sneeches don't got the stars. That's some it. got serial numbers on their bones. <laughs> well, it's time, it's now part of the show that we always get to where where we go. Hey, RJ. What up? Do androids be dreaming of electric sheep? Mareep. Do androids be dreaming of Mareep? Informos? Informa? Good or bad? Good. Why? Because. Good story. Tight plot. Tight, tight, tight. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? Androids. Good or bad? Fine. Good or bad? Fine. Good? No, it's it's fine. Good? It's an, or, in, it's an interesting deconstruction. Or we're, we're on the binary here. Good or bad? We, we've definitely rated things outside of the binary before. Not today. Why not? Because robots can't. Good. There you go. It's, you it's it. fine. It's an interesting reinterpretation of like a noir kind of story. A lot of the stuff that stands out as obvious or maybe even a little bit like ham-fisted now, you know, you gotta remember it was was the fucking 1960s when he published it. Very prescient in a lot of ways. And uh, it's also kind of creepy and gross, as these things tend to be. But it's short, you know, it's fine. And I think it's interesting in how you can use it to like engage with uh, the movies, specifically with Blade Runner 2049, which I think is very underrated. Amen. Yeah, RJ. You ever have that dream where everyone else is a robot but you? No. Whoa. I don't. Never? No. I've had that one. Hmm. Because I know you're all robots. I know the truth. That'll about do it for this episode on a lit class. It's um, the opposite of Phil K. Dick problem where he thought he was the robot. I know I'm humanity's last hope. I gotta save y'all. Thank, uh, thank you for listening. I'm Neo. We still have a bunch of bonus content that'll always be up on our Patreon. If you want to push the Patreon at patreon.com slash class because that helps pay for hosting and things like that, even as we figure out what the fuck we're doing with this show. Um, we're not really active on Twitter. I don't use Facebook anymore. The Class Tumblr is still cranking out memes. And you can also hang out with like-minded folks on Discord. Uh, Discord is technically for another podcast, but most of the people in that Discord are Class expats. I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, you could always buy stuff at the store, do all kinds of things at onolitclass.com. Until next time, whenever that may be, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. Till the day we meet again, in my heart is where I'll keep you, friends. We love you, bye. why we don't do this anymore why <laughs> i gave you gold jerry no, gold. You, no you did not <laughs> yeah i did i told you the script was bad